0: One of the things that I look back on when I was living in New York is just how much I don't really feel like I got to explore the city. And so I'm curious, what's your favorite spot in New York? So for a while, you know,
1: especially because I worked in the area, I really came to love Fort Greene Park. It's this beautiful little uh, oasis in in a part of the city that is changing rapidly. But there's so many little joys in there. You know, there's a bench dedicated to Richard Wright, uh, the author of Native Son. Of course, there's the uh, monument in the center. This this large monolith or uh, obelisk uh, that that was used as the backdrop for Spike Lee. She's got to have it. Uh, there's there's so much to it. I loved going there. I loved walking around. Um, Kyle, I know that I I once saw you there actually playing Pokemon Go uh, while I was while I was reading. But I've also really grown to love. Uh, you know that that's an area that's getting. Uh, more and more attention positive or negative but a lot of people are the one that i've grown to love recently is corona park in queens which was the, the site of the 1964 well the 30s and the 64 world's fair um my my partner and i went there on an, on an early date of ours uh because i'm a romantic like that uh and walked around and looked at the kind of rusted out relics of the 64 World's Fair, this last remnant of the new frontier ideals and seeing seeing things like the Unisphere or the New York State Pavilion or this this piece of column that was brought over from ancient Jerusalem and and all of this. And to realize that what was once a bustling World's Fair is now kids are skateboarding inside the, the base of the Unisphere. You know, people walk by and hang out and sit underneath this sculpture that must have cost thousands of thousands of dollars. And they don't have any idea where it came from, and they don't care. You know, you can walk through that entire park, and you know, how many times do we all drive past that park or walk past that park and kind of look up, and what used to be the New York State Pavilion and the Observation Towers, at most, we remember it for men in black. The, The reason I love that is not just the history, but the fact that that's such a testament to what New York is, which is that it will continue, and that. Not rather than this Ozymandias idea of look upon my works in despair and there's just feet and you don't know where they came from all of the pieces that made old New York, old New York all of the pieces of this history are still there and you can dig into them when you want to. You can go there specifically to see where they buried the time capital at the World's Fair but you can also exist and live an entire life with that as part of your backdrop Without ever knowing where it came from. And I think that kind of captures what's so magical about this city.
2: Um, with me, it's got to be Patsy's Pizzeria up in Harlem. It's a spot my dad introduced me and my brother to. Um, it would always be our little tradition after we went to Yankee Games. And, well, still is, but I mean, well, we're not going to Yankee Games this year. But um, it was a place he went to when he was a kid back in the 70s. It's, uh, you know, he would. He would go up there with friends uh when he was working and he was nearby he'd go to patsy's he, he always told us it was the best pizza he ever had and um he started taking us and it is i mean I'm a bit of a pizza snob being a big guinea um I just um just the the way it connects to the past of New York that it was this it was the second pizzeria in New York, and it's still here. And it went through a lot. It's seen a lot. The way Harlem almost was like this bustling place to the way Harlem fell and how Harlem was kind of a rough place for a long time. It's still there now as Harlem is kind of seeing its swing. But Patsy's is still there. It's still the same oven. It's still the same pizza. It's this connection between the past, the New York of then and the New York of now. And it's just also this connection that I have. Um, for as rough and frayed as the relationship with me and my father can be, it's this one thing that we could like have this, like we both can carry on and have this connection to. Uh, I just feel that the, the history in many ways of New York and my family and all this stuff with, with Patsy's. And every time I go there, it's just, I feel connected to something larger. Uh, than myself and um, I hope Patsy's is uh, able to survive this bullshit we're going through in 2020. I hope it's still here for a long time to come and uh, I can't wait to get uh, Patsy's again. Maybe honestly I may even call to see what their situation is and I might go for a drive to Harlem tomorrow and get some Patsy's myself right now.
0: This nightlife is our speed old bean. We're talking 1928's The Crowd, here on You're Missing Out, with special guest David Sims.
1: Our guest today is staff writer at The Atlantic, and he is one of the hosts of Blank Check with Griffin and David, a favorite show of, of mine and Tom's. Uh, we're so glad to have him here. David Sims is joining us to talk about The Crowd.
3: Hey, guys. How you doing? Can I call you David. Uh, certainly yes.
1: no i mean physically can i because uh the first like couple months that we knew each other i only referred to you as mr sims uh, oh and i uh got taunted for that at my old job so
3: uh yeah not a lot of people calling me mr sims out there but i appreciate it you can call me mr sims
1: i uh well you know that might get confusing because uh the film you picked today also involves uh a mr sims and a mrs sims and, and many true. sims
3: was yes, that? No, uh, no, I, I, I had forgotten that. I'd seen this film before, but had forgotten that the main, the title character is, that's my father's name, John Sims. <laughs> and Ma- Mary, the is the, Mary is the woman, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm, well, then I'm, I, and not to jump ahead, but I'm, I'm very sorry about, uh, your sister getting hit by that car. That, that's <laughs> terrible. And that was a rough, that was a rough one for you. Yeah. And then, uh, and then you, uh, obviously disappearing in the sequel, but we'll touch on that later. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, there is a there's a sequel. Uh I watched it. Weird. Uh it's a I would have one.
3: never seen the sequel. I eager to hear. Oh, our daily it, bread? Yeah. No, I, I know of it, but yeah.
1: They literally uh what did what did you say, Tom? They they uh it's they... Uh, the
2: original Cunningham kid. kid Yeah. The kid just goes upstairs <laughs> and just... just disappears. They forget the kid even exists.
1: Wow. Never comes up in the sequel. Um, but we're talking about the crowd, and I'm so excited that you chose this one. I sent you a list of films, but I was secretly, uh, quietly, you know, fingers crossed, hoping you would pick this, because I'd seen you give it five stars on Letterboxd, and I really wanted to get someone on who who knew this film, and that's not a lot of people, because it's uh, practically non-existent.
3: It is hard to watch. I can't even remember the first time I saw it. I think it must, might have been on Filmstruck or some deceased streaming service a few years back. But, uh, it's one of those movies that I was kind of like, oh, well, I should, you know, I should expand my, like, knowledge of silent films beyond the sort of, you know, couple dozen movies everyone sort of knows and has heard of and has been shown maybe in film school or whatever. And they, not that this is not a famous film, but like you say, it's always been a little harder to find. Um, and it blew me away. I just remember, like, instantly being like the those early shots of like the buildings and stuff, I was just like, oh whoa, 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 whoa. And so uh it's one of my favorite movies. It's always yeah, it's been one of my favorite movies for years. I was very glad you uh presented it to me.
1: Um I'm you know I'm I'm thrilled and there it was one of those ones that I knew when we were sending out uh asks to folks that it was one of the ones that would probably not get a lot of volunteers because uh you know folks kind of stay away from the silent films in general uh and especially a list that has things like casablanca or citizen kane or what have you i was so excited to dive into this one there's a little bit i mean there's an element of the film itself which is important there's also something interesting about you know we're going through the national film registry induction year by induction year Mm -hmm. and i think what's so interesting is the films that were picked in 1989 that first class of 25 when they picked them you got this sense that all of the ones they picked were like oh these are obvious these are such obvious like we gotta we have to get them in and it's interesting to see which ones have sort of fallen out of favor in the last thirty years or so.
3: Yeah, I mean this one, Learning Tree, Learning Tree. Sort of. Uh, I'm looking at the the early one because yes, you're right. Mostly it is like the canon. Like it is, they these movies are all parts of different canons, right? Yeah. And is there anything else that that you to know? me?
1: I think the I'm I'm excited when we eventually do the Grapes of Wrath for the fact that that went from being a movie that a movie rules. It went from being a movie that everyone knew and was considered the great American film. And now no one no one watches it. No one talks about it. And you're right. It's it's great. It's absolutely... We just did um, The Searchers. So I did... All, me and Tom both did a huge John Ford binge recently.
2: Yeah, I can't wait to get to that one. I haven't gotten to Grapes of Wrath yet, but
3: love me some Ford. I think it is tagged with the rep of, like, being Steinbeck's... You know, it has that kind of, like, high school... Uh, you're forced to read it slash watch it reputation not probably not watch it anymore but right you know right like this sort yeah of, um so maybe it's seen as this kind of like broccoli kind of movie but it is so so good i love the grapes of the wrath i, I would you now maybe i should have the learning tree is obviously a great movie it's just it's funny that that seems to be in this early list like that's their sort of acknowledgement to black cinema right like i'm trying to th- is there anything else in that in the place? first year 25? no five no so it's, no. it's sort of interesting that that's the one that was picked and it's interesting that intolerance was picked um yeah the, the, the national film registry is i don't really know much about its process i don't know how these movies are identified and settled on. I'm sure you guys know more than me. Uh
1: well there's actually if you're bored, uh if you find yourself sitting around with nothing to do, David, uh there's a documentary called These Amazing Shadows that was about yeah. the registry and going through how they pick it and what they decide and you get to see John Singleton's a talking head in it and Christopher right. Nolan and a bunch of people and and you know how they decide on each thing and, and uh Leonard Moulton arguing on behalf of some weird niche crap and it's uh very exciting
3: that sounds but, cool.
1: You know, so that's been exciting for us to kind of go through that and see what's what's coming ahead with the crowd. We always uh, starts off uh, reading why the National Film Registry uh, picked this film. Uh, So I'm going to go ahead and read a statement, their statement for why they selected this film, and then we'll get into it uh, more specifically. Uh, Everybody bear in mind, this is a this is a long one. So with the crowd, King Vidor repeated the artistic success he had achieved a few years earlier with The Big Parade but the film's downbeat realism thwarted the commercial success of his earlier effort. It stars Vidor's wife, Eleanor Boardman, and James Murray, who the director had discovered, ironically, in a crowd of extras just prior to filming. In this realistic tale of a young couple's struggles, the film's cinematography plays a role as big as those of its two lead actors. Its most memorable interior shot climbs from street level up columns of skyscrapers through a window into a sea of desks manned by pencil pushers, until the camera finally reveals a close-up of the lead actor played by murray cinematographer henry sharp mastered inventive and visceral interior shots and with the help of a hidden camera his new york exteriors including scenes at coney island convey excitement and spontaneity the dynamic visuals of the crowd are alternately in concert and in contrast with a highly emotional screenplay written by john va weaver and director vidor and the naturalistic performances of Boardman and Murray as they explore the faceless, soulless nature of the modern city. So that's why they said it was inducted. And clearly they had a lot to say. Uh, David, Mm -hmm. they don't always. When we did Star Wars, they just gave us a three-sentence plot synopsis. So they give us a lot to dig into here, which is nice, and I'm sure we have a lot to dig into with this one. You said you'd seen this before. Uh, I had caught parts of it on Turner Classic and then could never find it again. And Tom, this was your first time watching it, right?
2: Yeah, first time, never heard of it before. I mean, I've heard the name King Vidor, and um, when I watched it, I kind of just went in blind. All I did was check the runtime so I could know, like, when I I was be able to watch it. And uh, yeah, it really, uh, really blew my hair back at how kind of uh, timely and timeless it is. Like, it feels other than being a silent movie, like this feels very much like a movie thematically and all that you could see like today.
3: Yes, it feels like a total sort of building block movie for the you know so many kinds of stories that got told you know there's the Goddard quote i assume you guys have heard the Goddard quote which was how i first heard of this movie maybe you guys haven't heard the Goddard quote have you guys heard the Goddard quote uh, if
1: i have it's 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 slipped my mind but i'm very invested if i know anything about our relationships godard tom has checked out and i'm very invested
3: There there's some point at <laughs> the 60s you know godard's making his movies where he's asked i assume the slightly flippant question of like why aren't your movies more about ordinary people because godard's movies especially you know his early movies are so stylish and so on you know and like so sort of uh indulgent of you know kind of cool and fantasy and all that you know you know what i'm saying yeah and his response was quote the crowd had already been made so why remake it like his his take is like there's there there will never be a more sort of like seismic and elemental movie about like the human experience of being ordinary and striving to like stand out like you know then the crowd the crowd is it
1: tom you have the crowd to blame for your miserable junior year of college when we took the french new wave class so that's a plus you
3: know you got that guy. uh
2: well i guess uh <laughs> n- n- nothing's perfect so i'll, I'll I hold it against it
1: david what's what's
3: your relationship to king vidor as a as a filmmaker have you watched much of his other work or no i'm trying to think like i mean obviously his filmography is like you know, 2000 movies deep, as is, is, is true for a lot of those guys. Like, I mean, obviously, like, he, I know he worked on The Wizard of Oz, like, uh, famously, that, that movie was directed by a handful of people, and he did all of the Kansas stuff, um, which is probably the thing I know him from best. And I know him as a studio magnate. I've seen The Fountainhead, which is one of his later movies. That's obviously not a silent movie, uh, with Gary Cooper, which is. Bizarre and kind of has the imagery, like you know, like you know, his 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 effort with scale and with kind of like very simple, broad emotional love stories, like is is visible there. But I haven't seen a lot of his silent work. I'm trying to think what else is there now. Um, the love.
1: other major one I think is the Big Parade, which is the one they mentioned in the intro. I have which is...
3: right, 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 right. I have seen that. I have. I don't remember it very well, but I have seen the big parade.
1: I think it's interesting. You mentioned the fountainhead. It's so interesting to get a read on him because obviously he makes this Ayn Rand, you know, objectivist, uh, film. And then also around that same time makes our daily bread, which is not only the sequel to the crowd, but is, I would say the most overtly socialist film I've seen this side of Moss film. So very weird how he jumps around, uh, thematically.
3: um, yeah i feel like at the time the fountain had obviously now like you know ayn rand and and objectivism has been sort of like seized by uh a certain sector of american politics and american thought but like i feel like at the time people saw it as like well it's this it's a it's a hollywood story if nothing else right it's it's a it's a man you know trying to you know uh exist without compromising his vision and and you know all that you know like there there's so much broad uh heroic kind of narrative to the fountainhead that is more what king vidor probably zeroed in on you know the, the the triumph of the individual spirit the struggle like all that stuff and like you know you know in 1943 you might not be thinking as hard about like what it's you know capital a about
1: i i did a dive through his filmography in, in prep for this because i was just curious uh and i i will say and i hate to sound too dismissive of him of, he definitely loses something once sound comes in sure, sure you know um he did the he did the 1956 war in peace with uh with audrey hepburn and, and henry fonda where uh, yeah, henry fonda is yeah. the, the least convincing russian you've ever seen on screen
3: I have never seen that. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me that, like, there's such different mediums, even though they're obviously related. Like, it, it's it, it sort of blows my mind that that leap was kind of just made so rapidly.
1: And it's, it's strange who adapts. Like, we just... Our last episode we recorded, I don't know if it'll come out, but the last episode we recorded was The Searchers, and we were talking about John Ford being able to go from silent to sound and sound to color, and he was just like, I got this. And Vidor, I mean... I, I liked our daily bread and, and, and I liked some of the films he did after. And his final film is some weird, what the bleep do we know esque film called truth and delusion an introduction to metaphysics guy had a weird hey. career, but he, I did watch the crowd and I looked at this incredible uh, sense of a visual storytelling and wondered like, how is that going to translate into sound? And it turns out not, not well, um, not, not a lot, which is interesting.
3: Well, but because the the crowd is so broad and the emotions are so basic, but I don't mean basic in a bad way. Like it's such, it's such a broad metaphorical story. It's so perfect for the silent medium. Like if they were just, if they were talking, like it, it would probably feel thin. Like, you know, the, the, the things, the obstacles being thrown up and like the whole sort of narrative. Yeah, well, we'll talk about
1: it. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, we can get into it whenever I'm not, you know, but our daily bread has that problem. It's, it's the same characters, but they recast them because by this point, uh, James exactly. Murray was uh, was uh, not having the best time.
3: Oh, really? Uh, is it, that why? Oh man, he was panhandling. God, I'm re- I'm just reading about this. That's it, that it sucks. Lives the story of the crowd. Wow. I'm
1: I'm so glad this is the yeah, David. I'm so glad you're on because you are doing real time research and I love I it. it. It's so exciting.
3: Well, I um, right, yeah. I, I just I I knew that he was recast, yeah. and I just assumed it was like, well, that's Hollywood, baby. Like you know. And and now this, reading this story of like King Vidor like trying to help him and be like, look, if you can pull yourself together, you know, we, we can put you in the movie. And Murray like rejecting him like th- th- this is this like crazy human tragedy. He he dies by falling in the river like <laughs> like a couple years later. Like th- this is this is bleak. Yeah,
1: I, I, my Tom and and Kyle, our producer, know that I sometimes go on uh, deep dives of. Uh, forgotten obscure actors, and I gave them fair warning as soon as we finished this. I'm like, he's the next one. Uh, wow. James Murray is going to be my new Arthur Lake. I'm just going to go deep down a rabbit hole. Um, But when you watch Daily Bread, the new actor he gets to play uh, John Sims, you're, you're right. It's very broad. Like, he's playing just, well, shucks, I'll tell right. you what we're going to do, and it doesn't land. Whereas in this, it's so... Captivating from the start. Now, I, I let's. I have one note about the beginning of the film, and then we can kind of go all over the place. Which is, and I don't mean to to dip into the personal here, David, but uh, mm-hmm. you know on your on your way of the gun episode uh, mm-hmm. of Blank Check, which at the time of recording is recently out. By the time this episode drops, you guys will probably be on to an entire new uh, mini series. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, you mentioned you know hope for the future, and and you made a comment about uh, you know you said wanting to start a family, and so I just wanted to ask. Are you planning on having the child on the 4th of July so that you can use that <laughs> title card of what is the Declaration of Independence compared to what's happening in the Sims household? Is that a plan? I don't,
3: I don't think predatory? so because you can only pull that off if you're having your baby on the 4th of July on the turn of the century, right? At, on at 1990. I mean, 1900. That is... Uh, that is the only way to pull that off. A I of mean, July
1: baby. I, I, you're saying that to a person who was supposed to be a Fourth of July baby on 1990, oh, wow. and it didn't work. So oh, wow. we see how that failed. But no, I mean, that's that's how we start. We start with this this new life, and it's this very kind of quick journey of this character. We we were mostly focused on on well, we we balanced the time between John and Mary, but it's mostly focused on on John, who is our uh, who is our kind of emotional rock and film. And he is, I I feel like every man is overused, but he is kind of, uh, sort of the every man, especially for the time that sort of that post World War One spirit of the go getter that is kind of encapsulated by like Harold Lloyd in his films. But of course, this is not nearly as uh, goofy right. or zany as a Harold Lloyd.
3: Funny, right? Of course, yeah,
1: yeah. I, there's so much even from the start, uh, little things that. When you're watching this, kind of catch you off guard. Uh, the the just showing the transition to days and the falling cards and and little things that already tell you, oh, okay, this guy knows. If you don't know, can you do or anything that already tells you, okay, this guy's trying things. And I know it may seem like a minor thing, but when you've watched enough of these older films, <laughs> this show, yeah. you get excited when you see somebody trying something.
0: Well,
2: I think you know I, the beginning kind of really does prime you for this movie, maybe being like David said, broad and in a good way, just for like, oh, it's the t- literally the turn of the century born on the 4th of July. And this kid's going to go places. He's going to be the, he's going to be president one day. And, you know, you kind of set you up for that journey without, you know, tipping over into, I don't know, being too unsubtle or whatnot. I just think it's a pretty good way to prime you for what's about to come. Although not, Everything that's about to come because there's a turn that really mm-hmm. uh took me by surprise half well, I guess halfway through this movie.
1: The one thing I appreciated about this is how despite having these exquisite uh and and well thought out artistic shots, it is kind of minimalist compared to a lot of silence at the time because there's no big dramatic death scenes people are not you know flailing their hands out in in shock or repulsion it's the 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 death of the mother John's mother at the beginning is you just see. A stretcher and a long hallway and a child and being told, well, you have to be brave now. And that's how they convey that information.
3: That, I mean, that is when I think I sort of snapped to attention when I was watching this movie. Like, it's, like you say, obviously subtle films, I mean, silent films, are, subtlety is not a word you associate them up with, you know, because you need to be so broad as an actor to convey the emotion. But, like, just... The kind of starkness of that, and this is a movie that's coming out like on the cusp of the depression. Like, it, the, to think of like how many, you know, as America's you know population is exploding, and 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 so like to think of the amount of people in the audience who would have gone through something like that. It doesn't feel ludicrous or you know excessively tragic or whatever you know like back then in 19 the early 1900s like just that kind of like well there's nothing to be done about it like you know it's just this is just how it is
1: and it's it's such a you know it it was a tough watch uh at this particular time as well uh there was a lot of i think had i you know had we watched this film in i don't know 2015 maybe maybe we would have gone oh remember how it used to be but now there's so much of it that does kind of feel very analogous you know there's
3: yeah, 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 yeah.
1: and not just the, you know the launching that but even just i when i was watching this uh and you know i've been candid on the show about being uh 30 and and unemployed amidst a global pandemic and not feeling great and uh you know i'm here in new york we're all uh kyle sound in florida but the rest of us are all uh new yorkers and uh Seeing the title card when John was twenty one he became one of the seven million that believe New York depends on them., uh, it just felt like a weight in my gut that
2: was that was unbelievable and yeah it it's it really is crazy. This came out a year before the depression hit, and just like it's just one of those magical movie moments of like this guy was really keyed into something and really just delivered and uh it yeah i it must have been wild to see this movie and then like a year later really capitalism just failed
3: right like the whole the whole premise of what he's doing kind of was exposed
2: yeah Yeah. And, and and that's the thing that really really kind of blew my mind like going into this blind of just how in 1928 you know this must have been crazy watching a movie about this guy really just like taking to test the entire idea of like Oh yeah, you could just become like one of the 7 million office drones and we'll make you feel like you're important but you're not. You're just just some disposable thing that we won't even remember when you quit and leave the office or whatever. It's just like, you're just a cog in the machine and if you you quit, we could just very easily replace you and your life will be miserable because that's just, if you're not working, you're not important.
3: Uh
1: Yeah. And there's so much, I mean, I think about uh you know they're they're weirdly similar despite being you know completely different genres but you know you watch something like Fritz Lang's Metropolis and the way that it, it basically shows its characters it's extras as human cattle and uh you know your brain kind of go is trying to do the work of oh well this is a metaphor for how it is now and then he just turns around Vidor turns around and he goes no i'm just going to show you how it is now i'm just literally going to show you this is your day-to-day. Every day to day everyday you know, the, the camera panning over the desks, panning up those Blade Runner-esque buildings, uh, it's, oh, I that, couldn't get over how stunning that sequence that, is. That's
2: that, just... that wide shot of him at his desk for the first time, and Incredible. you see him in the row, the sea of other men sitting at their desks, just little, just little cogs in the machine, it was just, I was, yeah, I think that, that shot might have been the, 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 moment that really sucked me in, of where I realized like, exactly what this movie was gonna be, because, like I said, I had no idea, so, and it, yeah, it, King Vito really just shot the hell out of this movie.
3: It's, it, it's, it's, again, it's another of those early shots that makes you kind of snap to attention, but, I mean, you think of The Apartment, right, you think of, mm-hmm. like, other movies uh, that show, like, kind of grid-like, uh, oppressive, office-like life, but, like, here there's that weird the balance he's kind of like striking at where it's like the guy's optimism is so overflowing and the sort of like feeling of, well, you know, I can stick out like is, is, is so narratively important, but it does feel like it's not exactly like de- cripplingly depressing, but it's so bleak to kind of see him immediately shoved into this, like, you know, this monolith. And I, I, it's not surprising that this movie was not a hit because like, I don't know what audiences would really make of it. Like I do think it's a, it's a weirdly triumphant movie, like despite all of the insane tragedy and the, that general sort of bleakness that I'm talking about. But like, imagine like sitting down like in the audience and like trying to figure out what to take away from it. I, I feel like, audiences might have kind
2: of been into it for like the first half because of the love story and like the the kids are getting born but then when the daughter gets hit by the car and it because from then on it's just a series of never-ending just miseries and failures and um i know the ending the very ending was like a big kind of problem with the movie like they kept they had a bunch of different endings that just wasn't working until they Mm -hmm. settled on the um them sitting and watching the show which i mean i guess it's kind of the best case scenario for like it's a happy ending but not like obnoxiously out of place happy ending it still leaves a lot of like well they're still he's still a juggler making a pittance and he's got a wife and a kid to still feed. Like, there's nothing. This there still isn't the greatest of endings, triumphant or anything. So, um, I think, yeah, I, I think the second half is where probably when audiences just went, oh no, like, what the hell am I not. supposed
3: to make make of this, right? You know, yeah. But that's what's sort of brilliant about the movie. But anyway, you know that the second half is challenging, but the first half is definitely laying out kind of fallacy of his his whole dream of sticking out of the crowd
1: what struck I mean, me too when i was watching it was i ended up going on a weird uh, google search where i was trying to figure out and bear with me uh, if if king vidor was was of jewish ancestry mm-hmm. and i say that because i kept thinking of i've been reading some of um shalom aleichem's uh you know tevi of the dairyman stories and, all that, and i just felt that there is that sense of you know that that Job-esque story, or, you know, any of those like, you know, the the Teddy Derryman stories where there is this kind of storytelling in that tradition, in in the Yiddish literature tradition that is kind of like this arc of bad things happen and we get through them and we find the little joys where we can, and that's not really common in American storytelling, especially not now.
2: I kind of wonder if the Coens have ever seen this movie. Like, I want to hear what they would say about it, because, like, you just saying that was like, oh, a simple, a simple man, and then you just think of everything else they've done. I'm like, oh yeah, no, that's this is kind of literally what they do, like a lot.
1: Oh well, that this this simple man is, is I believe, I think, going to win the award for the most Jewish film, uh, ever made, right? I think we're all that's just kind of there's there's so much that starts with the dibbick that already gets the prize. But no, I did I did wonder about that, and 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 how that's kind of un, uncommon, and I guess it's also a case of there's a struggle with these older films, these kind of pre-code films, and these early silent films, because there's so much that we think of as, oh, they didn't do these things in movies back then, but we're just kind of used to thirties and forties films that were a bit more limited in what they did. Uh, I think about, and even kind of explicit, there's, there's in the first half, you know, they get married, they go on their honeymoon and there is a lot of uh, overtly uh, sexual, you know, humor and innuendo in that, that, I, you would not get again uh for a while i'm always thrown anytime there's uh adult humor in an old film not negatively thrown but just surprised like oh they're doing that okay
3: i mean i guess this probably doesn't even count as pre-code because i think pre-code yeah really more applies to like you know uh talkies but but yeah certainly there is there's the the whole thing with the the book the like the marital book yeah, that, what a young assume... husband ought to know Uh, yeah, which, um, by the way, is readable. I Googled it. It's in the Gutenberg project. Yeah. Oh, I've read, I've read portions. It's wild. Yeah. It is, it is quite wild. Um, and, uh, and like I, the reason I was sort of like clicking around on it when I was watching, I was like, how frank, like, because the movie, as you say, kind of feels frank. Like, uh, uh, like, so how frank would like a book like that be? And you read it and you're like, Oh, okay. Not frank at all. Uh, like, you know, completely flowery and kind of like, Moralistic and all that, but um. Oh, yeah, if you no, want the, the, a wild
1: read, look up what a young wife should know. Oh boy, mm. the worst, the worst.
3: Um, what was it? Uh, yeah, right. Um, so, but yeah, like that early segment. Of course, you've got like you said, it's his childhood and all that. But then, right, the the early kind of verite stuff, like Niagara Falls, Coney Island, like the New York City street stuff, the, the stuff that they somehow like whatever captured with hidden cameras and all that kind of stuff. Like that, just feels revolutionary a moment oh, yeah. like this right like i mean it's just there and there are such moments of artificiality in the movie like the skyscraper like the office like but then like to sort of mix in this like very tactile very understandable very like that's what i love about His whole message of like, look, you might struggle to stick out as an individual or to, you know, achieve whatever your like lofty American dreams are. But like, there's so much joy in all the little stuff.
1: Well, And especially, you know, you mentioned Coney Island and that's such a symbol, especially for New Yorkers. But in, you know, in New York and film of the uh, the kind of working class Disney world it's where everyone can come together and take their mind off of the uh, nightmare that our lives may be right I mean right. you've you've lived here uh, you know a good long time David you've I'm sure you've been to Coney Island plenty of times certainly yeah, yeah. Of course. you know we all have that and Tom as well I know you have uh, you know when you were younger right
2: yeah, I had to get back to Coney Island one night. It was really crazy. They blamed me for something and uh, something with Cyrus. I don't know, but uh, yeah, I, I've 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 dealt a lot with. Uh, that's a Warriors joke, guys. All right,
1: now I have the Joe Walsh song stuck in my head. Thank you, Tom. That's helpful. Yeah, that's that's why I'm here. I love seeing it in older films. There's a you know I I have a there's a Buster Keaton uh, Fatty Arbuckle film shot uh, at Coney Island that I I love to look at just to see the old rides and things. But it's so exquisitely captured in this film. Yeah. you know it's uh, the, the the shot choice is the angles i mean i loved seeing i'd never seen that before the little uh see who's necking tunnel mm. you know there's this rich history of coney island as kind of the you know this this place of vice and like where you could get away and uh one of the attractions they don't show in this one, but one of the attractions was just something that would blow gusts of air up and you'd see if some woman's skirt would go up it was a you know the the old coney island attractions obviously didn't last but uh it's such an interesting moment and i think there's so many new york films do that uh even films like uh in uh sophie's choice they make such a big deal of the the symbolism of coney island as this this oasis in an otherwise dark place and and mm-hmm. vidor makes such good use of that here
2: i i just love any like as I'm a big, uh, you know, Mike knows this. I love watching these like seventies and eighties B movies and all that stuff. And just those movies got such a big boost from filming in New York at the time. But like, Mm -hmm. even in this movie, like just shooting on the streets in 1928, New York, maybe 27, I don't know, but just, it just gets just such a great boost of character that I just, I just loved seeing it. You know, that big wide shot at night with the wonder wheel was, you know, just like, just crack for me. And, um, I, I, it's just, you know, there's, there's nothing like just being on the streets of New York back when New York had a little more character than it, right. does. it had, like wonder,
3: like, a, you know, that, right? Like, that's the sort of sensation of it, like this weird sense of wonder.
1: And I mean, we all, do you ever have that, David, I'll ask you too, especially because you're a historically minded person, do you ever have that weird feeling where you're walking in some part of New York, you know, even if I'm just, you know, I, I I'm not downtown in, uh, you know, around like Third Street that much anymore Uh, but if you were going to the IFC to watch a movie or something and all of a sudden you just kind of look down and realize like oh Allen Ginsberg walked the same sidewalk
3: sure sure you have those
1: you know there's this sense to it and I I think especially with film you know so many people forget that uh, the origins of American cinema are in uh, New Jersey you know that there was not always uh, Hollywood you know there is this entire cinematic history of new york and this film captures that so well
3: it does and it's a fair point right like you know hollywood los angeles like all that like is is sort of primitive at this point like you know that i mean i guess i guess the film industry has been sort of bustling along for more than a decade but um no reason not to set obviously a movie like this in new york which is that mix of like oh it's a city of wonder it's the land of opportunity like you know but also like you are within a staggering amount of people that are all sort of trying to do the exact same thing that you're trying to do
1: i also think there's something with with new york that makes it such a i you know hate to sound like another person going it's it's like a character but something about new york is the fact that it always seems to almost act in opposition to uh the rest of the world in some cases i always feel like whenever the rest of the world feels happy new york is at its bleakest and vice versa you know you look at the 60s and you know over in california the beach boys are are singing about surfing and in, in new york uh the velvet underground are singing heroin uh in the 80s everybody's uh partying and in new york we've got you know richard kern and the <laughs> the bleak underground scene so there is just this kind of perpetual sense of new york being its own microcosm and uh as much as they say if i can make it here i can make it anywhere you do kind of feel especially with a film like this this idea of just you've fallen into this entire world unto itself
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it's a world unto itself That's a good way to think about it and like so those moments of like niagara falls coney island the, the nearby uh holiday zones you know are are also very sort of like carefully chosen I guess.
1: yeah i mean that was niagara falls for the the longest time was the kind of honeymoon destination the the other thing with this i think is it's so there's so many moments that you look at and and have to wonder if they found their way into other films intentionally or not uh you know like tom mentioned you know obviously you wonder oh did the cohen see this but the the weird thing is um when they're having when we have that brief moment of narrative bliss And Johnny is strumming a ukulele and silently singing to his wife. Uh, I weirdly thought of Navin R. Johnson singing I'm picking out a thermos for you to uh, to Bernadette Peters and the jerk. Like you do wonder how much of this otherwise unseen film still kind of crept into Mm. other people's work in so many different ways.
3: Yeah, I mean, it was I guess it wasn't a hit at the time, but it, it is it has long been a recognized masterpiece right like you know it's a it's a thalberg movie it's a a big sort of mgm classic like so even though for whatever it didn't sell tickets like i don't know when it is that it sort of entered the cinematic canon but certainly like you said they made a sequel uh and someone like godard would be like well yeah the crowd obviously you know like you know would reference the crowd as like easily as someone would reference breathless today or whatever Uh,
2: well it is Pretty funny because uh it's fitting that you are on the this episode because this movie was a blank check movie for king Vidor. they didn't really want to make it and but they were just like well he's made so many goddamn hits for us i mean we might as well just let him make it and even when it was made uh you know it says here that louis b Mayer really hated the, the movie he just didn't like it and i guess it did enough like you said to get a sequel but uh, th- this you know it's so unique and so uh trying to push things forward that you really needed a blank check to get something like this made in twenty eight
1: did we which reminds me, David, did we blow this for you? I know you guys probably had a, a King Vidor series ready to go in the chamber did we
3: yeah, it's the last three years <laughs> <Yes>. um <laughs> I guess he would do what so his first movie was a short documentary called hurricane and Galveston it looks kind of, kind of cool. It's a lost film. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it makes sense that Louis B. Mayer watched it and was like, this thing is, is too bleak. Like you can't end it on the family has decided to weather. It's many tragedies and is part of the crowd. Like, you know, that sh- we need more than that. Surely, like surely the guy needs to get his big break, but like, I know they made a happy ending that like they could tack on right there. There was like a, an optional sort of like, and then he got a great job like that you could have seen. And they're like at a Christmas tree or something. I've never seen it, but I don't think anyone watching this movie even then would be remotely convinced by that ending. Like it's not, it wouldn't make any sense uh, with what you've just seen. Like the movie is not about a guy becoming successful. Like, There's nothing about this guy that strikes you as special. I mean, except for that he's a a person who has feelings and like you know loves his wife and a like but it's not like you watch this movie and you're like god this guy must be just the best at advertising slogans i i was honestly kind of worried at in the ending in the movie
2: that the guy he was sitting next to they were going to be like well actually i'm the head of an uh ad agency and you did this oh i'm gonna give you a big right. pile of money to work for me i was kind of like oh this is the happy ending they're gonna give us because you gotta have a happy ending but luckily they didn't and left it more on that um kind of triumphant but if you think about it for more than 2 seconds it's still kind of like well these people are in a bad situation this isn't good
3: yeah but i i mean look the movie didn't do well so yeah. movie mayor's right and fuck me but like how many people <laughs> could be watching this movie in 1928 1929 and be like well that's me like i lost a child i lost my job like you know like i can i can see that like uh king vidor thinking like well i could be speaking to people but then of course when you think of the depression you think of the films of the 30s it's very obvious that like no audiences wanted comedy they wanted fantasy they wanted like highfalutin stuff they wanted wackiness they wanted zaniness like gold diggers of 1933 is like one of the best movies ever made about the great depression like you know like you know like it's definitely this kind of realism definitely was not um being called for until the 40s it's the sullivan's
1: travels dilemma
2: louis b Mare also disliked the movie because uh there was a scene where you get to see it where he's in the bathroom and you see the toilet uh yeah sure well he thought that was disgusting and uh he didn't want it in a movie he made but
3: uh king Feodor overrode him i guess we need to see that toilet you know i mean there's that weird realism i guess again
1: what else sticks out to me there's something that speaking of realism i mean Again, we've all. I, I can. I can at least say this without speaking too much about any of these personal lives. We've all at some point uh, cohabitated in a small apartment in New York with someone else, and uh, as a result, that scene where it's the two of them just fighting about this one cabinet door and and just so tense, as though God has forsaken you because this you know this fold out bed is falling or something like you. That still felt so. I'm like, oh, I, I, I recognize myself in so many moments of John's journey in this film. And, you know, I, I found that so compelling in this that it it so captures those moments. It's not, you know, David, you've talked in the past and I, I love it. I uh, When you've talked about the problem with love stories in films that so often do this thing of the tension comes out of, well, I lied to you about this thing or I did this elaborate. You know, there was this elaborate problem we have to overcome because it feels so cheap. And with this, there's no elaborate problem. It's, it's the real issues that we all face from day to day and that are hard to overcome.
3: Right,
2: right. Uh, I, Nobody's lying about being a king or something. It's no. Like, no, I'm just kind of uh, taking my frustrations out on my wife because I'm just an office drone and she's kind of getting fed up with this shit.
1: Yeah, it, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, just just a couple days ago, we were uh, my, my partner and I were arguing about a about an outlet above the, the kitchen counter. And you knew that that argument was not really about the outlet. That was, you know, she's feeling overworked. I'm feeling underworked. It's, uh, you know, it, it happens. Right. Uh, and I, I think what I what I love about this is, is that this film also doesn't do anything you have those moments where she's saying, well, I'm actually going to go with my mother. Well, I'm having a baby. This is, there's these just so many moments. And the, the thing that really socked me in the jaw is, is it weirdly, you, you don't think about, uh, lines really hitting you in a silent film, but there are so many lines in this film that just when he looks at her and he says, do you understand me? Mm-hmm. I got choked up. This film is, is so brilliant that, that you're getting choked up at title cards you know
3: yeah no you're right i mean i like how simple and stark the title title cards are which is a hallmark of silent movie obviously but like just since everything in this movie is sort of a broad emotional stroke that just sort of makes a lot of sense to me and since we don't need like it it's sort of impressive how little detail we really need like how mythic his story is and in just in terms of like you know he was the son of a man and a woman and his mother died and he met a woman he loves and he had a friend and he you know like it's, it's so basic but i feel like vidor's whole point is like it's it's only basic in that like it's a story that everyone would recognize or it's a story you know that like that would speak to so many people
1: and what's great is that you know i i've watched a lot of these silent films where they have these sort of uh, what one could call flowery title cards of you know these very poetic lines that you kind of just you maybe roll your eyes at a bit and this one earns every one of them you know yeah. if any other movie had months endless months the crowd laughs at you always but it will cry with you for only a day if any other film had that you know you probably roll your eyes shrug it off but you really feel that in this he earns every one of those
3: cards right yeah Which he is- does Yeah,
2: I do love. Um, you know, it is kind of broad, and subtlety is not the, you know, thing you expect from a silent movie. I just do love the unspoken about thing that they're all, like Johnny and his friend. They're they're it's they're in prohibition, and they're still just drinking and kind of getting into shenanigans. I mean, just him literally pulling out some gin underneath his bathtub, (laughs) and then he's got to go find his friend. Which again, in how frank the movie is, his friends just drunk off his ass, dancing with two dames, and him and his friends spend the rest of the night drinking themselves stupid, rooting Christmas Eve. And I don't know, just like that specificity, like prohibition's still going on when this movie's out and them just being like, Yeah, and the people working on the street and like blue collar guys, they don't they don't care. They're still drinking.
1: Yeah, and I can't tell you, Tom, how many times, you know, my girlfriend and I have a fight and then I go over to your place and you've got exactly two flappers uh just hanging out, dancing to a record. I mean it happens all the time, right?
2: Well, I have a type, so don't don't shame me about
1: that. Uh, I there was, but there's just so much with this. Um, I mean, and and things like again, if another movie did, let's let's talk about the the big moment. I think in this movie, and I'm you know the the death of his daughter. Mm-hmm. That is, you know that that certainly uh, hit me like a ton of bricks. I know it hit Tom. That is that is a moment oh, yeah. that really I think. You know, we talked about it could be over dramatic and stuff. I I think the fact that he just makes us sit in this pain is really engaging.
3: It's interesting because the birth of the daughter is not even a moment in the movie. Like it's it's addressed in a title card, or so are sort of jumping forward, like, oh, and then he had another kid, like, you know, and things kept moving along and like he got his raise. And I feel like Vitor's trying to be like, Look, this entire system functions as it's supposed to function until there is this kind of a tragedy and then it's like you're just gonna get left behind like there's just nothing you can do right you know like there there's there's no sort of institutional sympathy or help for him or for them there's no time to grieve like you can't take the time
2: you need to grieve you got to get back to work otherwise you're just left in the crowd uh it's pretty like yeah i mean literally we're seeing that today like right now with this yeah. pandemic that's going on which makes it all the more crazy that this movie came out
3: like what 92 years ago at this point geez right yes yes correct 92 years ago wow uh it's funny you see 20s and you're like oh that was 80 years ago i still do that thing where i'm yeah. like the 20s were 80 years ago that's how long yeah. ago they were you know, yes yeah. this, this film. <laughs> Hundred year anniversary is on its way
1: which uh, is what we have to weirdly uh, uh, we weirdly have to hope for with this because it's so unavailable I was saying before we started to Kyle that it's now a, a race against the clock to see Warner Brothers has got three years to put this out on a on home video before it just falls into the public domain
2: well yeah. this, I, I like I said to them this this is going to be a thing that Kino will pick up and put out because they they they're kind of like the kings of doing the silent movies
1: no, Kino, you're right, Tom. Kino's very good with distributing classics. I just got my copy of Cabin Boy. They're very good about the, those most iconic of films. Um, but no, there's that, that moment, there's, there's a moment where, and I and maybe it seems obvious, and I think if somebody had done this when we were in film school in one of their films, we would have brushed it off. But just him working at his desk and the projection on his head, first of the numbers, then of his daughter, and then the car, you're just like, oh, that that gets it. That yeah. gets the idea of having to work through grief better than any monologue could. Power of silent movies, man. Yeah, and it's it's weird because I think um, now David, David, if I if I may ask, what did you did you study film specifically when you went to college? Were you an English major? What was your I was an
3: English major? I didn't. I mean, I've only you know I just watched movies, um, but no, I was an English major, and that was in um, like that was the only subject I took because I went to school in England
1: you don't there's no one's gonna no one's gonna do a bit on you here david i was
3: i was worried
1: i have pontificated Uh, on this show i think about like Takeshi's castle and monster munch so no there's no um, right
3: so you know in england you really only study one subject so no i i i never study film academically um except for just watching them a lot and reading a bunch of books but that's about it
1: when we were in film school like they the first year your freshman year you were not allowed to use sound in your films at all And I think they were trying to impress on you the idea of being able to, you know, tell a story with no dialogue, being able to tell a story visually. But I feel like the examples they showed us didn't necessarily convey that. And everybody was just waiting to use sound. Right. And when you look at this, I I keep thinking, like, there's so many points in this where it uses just sparingly. I mean, you know, there's the the point where he's going to he's grieving. He's going to kill himself. I mean, that's that's where you're leading up to at the end of this is is he's going to he's contemplating suicide, uh, which was also a much more common uh, narrative device in older films and older material, I find is just sort of this matter of fact. Well, nothing left to do, uh, whereas now it's played with such heightened tension. I mean, there's a I've got it sitting behind me. There's a Mickey Mouse comic strip where Mickey's going to shoot himself. So it was uh, played very differently in this time period. But it, it's you know when you have that line, uh, we don't know how big the crowd is, what opposition it is until we get out of step with it. And there's this moment where he's going to end it, and his son says to him, "When I grow up, I want to be just like you." Yeah. And that may seem trite, uh, you know, in in other scripts. But I think about like just that element is so powerful. You know, a, a movie that I don't actually love, and I, I it's a weird bring up here, but I, you guys have seen Parenthood, I assume the the Ron Howard yeah. film.
3: Sure, not, not yeah. since I was a teenager, but I've seen it. Yeah.
1: Like I, I could not tell you what happens in 90% of that movie, but I remember even as a kid, well, you know, like a teenager watching it and having that scene where the, the kid says to Steve Martin, dad, when I grow up, I want to, I want to work where you work. That way we can see each other every day. And just feeling that line of being like, Oh, okay. This, this works. This one particular moment so captures what is. What this movie's trying to get at, too, I think, which is this realization that we have to have of, John Sims will never mean anything to the city of New York.
3: To but, most people in the entire universe.
1: Yeah, but he means so much to this family he has built. Yeah. And and we all kind of deal with that. It's It's hard not to feel overwhelmed or feel small walking around Manhattan or Brooklyn, but then you come home and, you know... Somebody asks how your day was, or a, a little dog looks up at you and is excited to see you, and that gets you through it.
2: You know, there's there is something that I do love about this movie that I, you know, a lot of movies really don't kind of get into, which is that this idea that when you become a parent, uh, you change and everything come, becomes about your kids, and that's not really true with Johnny Sims. It's like when he loses his kid, yeah, he's grieving and all that, and then he quits his job, but he really is all about trying to make himself feel important and he can get a good job from his brother-in-laws and he just won't do it and he's kind of gonna um sentence his family to living poor because of his pride that is kind of like I said the bittersweet part of the ending it's I, 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 I don't know I feel like a lot of movies would not go that route of just saying no he's still kind of living to make himself feel good and feel like he's going to be important.
1: I'm also, I think we are all guilty of that. I mean, especially look, uh, you know, uh, uh, Tom, David, you guys are both uh, writers. I uh, was, and would like to be again, (laughs) you know, we're all in that boat to some degree. And, and we all suffer from those moments of envy or frustration. I mean, I'll be, I'll be candid about the fact that my, my partner is a, uh, a very successful editor and she's having all kinds of great success and and I am the one with you know nothing to to really show for it professionally and you kind of feel that thing that that Sims is feeling which is you know Johnny Sims which is feeling worthless you know feeling like what do i really contribute and the added pressure of her relatives kind of looking at him as a failure and and seeing him as as a waste, you do kind of feel this... You you, you it's, it's weird because when you try and... Whether it's just being in a relationship, you know, a serious relationship, or starting a family, or whatever it is, you do, as much as it brings you comfort that you feel like you matter, you do also feel this added pressure to like, I have to be better now. I have to be good enough for this person. I have to prove myself. And you feel like Johnny throughout this has to prove himself. I mean, I, you know, there's that, how often he keeps repeating like no no don't worry we're gonna have a big house when my ship comes in well we're gonna do this when my ship comes in when the ship comes in he keeps believing that that's gonna work for him at some point
3: right and that makes sense in that like that's just sort of the whole purpose of the quote-unquote american dream right it's like everyone will get their chance or you know everyone's sort of like entitled to their shot And as long as you can stand out from the crowd you can climb the ladder you can have that big breakthrough and like you know i know my the history of my family there was definitely a lot of that uh sort of like yeah no no well you know like things are really going to get cooking when x happens and it's sort of like a lot of waiting for x to happen and as you're saying, Tom, and, like, as you guys are both saying, like, the the, the 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 crucial moment is him realizing, like, oh, you know, I have something here, which is corny, but corny in the right way. Like, it's, it's sort of corny in this kind of mundane, kind of sad, but, you know, very beautiful way. And, like, that's why the ending has to be the ending. The ending has to be him accepting his lot in life, which is both nice and tragic. And his lot in life is to be part of the crowd. Maybe it's because I went in blind not knowing exactly what this
2: movie was going to be, but I was uh, very, like, impressed and taken aback by the just storytelling symmetry of him shitting on the the juggler in the beginning, and then he becomes the juggler. Right. You, know, maybe, you know, that's just, you know, not knowing where this movie was going, because I didn't expect it to go as dark as it did. But I just love that that storytelling moment of him, of you realizing, oh, he's finally come full circle and he's now the guy people on the train on the the double decker bus are going to be making fun of now
1: yeah and tom you know in the sequel our daily bread he's there as the clown and then four kids hit him in the face with his sign and then he shoots a television talk show host that's the story arc in it I mean, this, this, that's the story arc of uh i hate that movie poisoned my brain so much that as soon as they showed the clown with the sandwich board i was like that's the first thing i jumped to uh was todd phillips the joker before we, we wrap up, uh, we always try and end talking about uh, the Academy Awards and whether these films did well there and how the, the mark of how they were received at the time. This was nominated,
3: I guess you could maybe say Best Picture, not really. I guess they were sort of, they, they that that was part of the argument, right? It's like, well, we gave two Best Pictures in the first year. And it's like, yeah, it was in the first year, like, you know, and still to this day, no one can really explain the difference now the way i've always understood the difference is that like best picture which is what wings won right yes acknowledged sort of first winner of best picture was more like best production so it was like great job on such an incredibly well-mounted technical achievement like like this movie was such so incredibly well produced and then unique and artistic picture is more like like sort of the most the artful most artful movie of the year which you would think of as best picture like i've always sort of thought like sunrise might really be the first best picture winner like obviously it doesn't work that way because i think technically wings won quote an outstanding picture uh, but I think sunrise is the best movie of the year i mean i think they were folding two years in but right like you know like sunrise is like a staggering achievement and i and wings is 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 cool like I, I don't hate wings but you know
1: i i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna say something that may be controversial to the five people listening to this who are passionately invested in the Oscars i don't even think wings is the best film in that film in that set of nominees uh, because you've so Evol- so seventh heaven Circus, obviously circus had its nominations say. revoked uh oh, that was right, the thing with that right, year right. they right. They nominated Chaplin for director, actor, picture, and then they were like, oh, he'll win everything, so let's just give him one, and
3: then... They gave him, like, a special award or whatever. I mean, look, they were figuring stuff out. Yeah.
1: But, but that...
3: Uh, seventh Heaven is the nominee that year, right? Yeah, right. Seventh yeah. Heaven.
1: It's the, the nominees for the, the general, you know, populist picture were Wings, Seventh Heaven, and The Racket. But here, you were talking about, oh, Best Artistic Achievement as opposed to Best Technical, and even that is kind of confounding because... Yes, that's true of Sunrise, and yes, that's true of the crowd. But the other nominee for a unique and artistic picture is Chang, which is a half narrative, half ethnographic documentary by Marion C. Cooper. Got a tiger. Uh, it's it's not. It's about a boy in a village too. It's it's. And there's elephants. It's it's very. I don't even know how to describe it without sounding. Uh, It's it's got it gives you kind of mondo kane vibes at points. It's a weird one, but in any event, uh, the crowd was nominated for outstanding artistic picture as as David indicated, uh, lost to Sunrise: A Song of Two Humans, which is another uh, heart wrenching dramatic story of a couple trying to get by.
3: I mean, obviously, an incredible movie, and like I think uh vidor acknowledged his indebtedness to like Murnau and lang like, yeah. like you know that he was very intrigued by these german movies i know sunrise is a hollywood movie but that's Murnau.
1: but the other nomination it got was best director of a dramatic picture which it lost to frank Borzage for seventh heaven so crowd walked away from the oscars uh completely uh empty-handed but managed to survive and have a a I argue a stronger legacy than than Uh, not perhaps sunrise but many of the films that were nominated that year but as we were discussing it's not available for people to see now which is a big a bit of an issue i mean if you if you know where to look i don't want to i don't want to rat you david how did you rewatch this did you have a copy of it or um
3: (laughs) if you don't want to admit it i'm we probably got it from the same place yeah we got it from Place, i imagine i mean I, I like i said i think i first watched it on filmstruck because this is owned it's owned by warner like yeah it's part of the MDM library which they own um so it wouldn't be too hard for them to put it on hbo max or whatever it is they want to do i don't know what their approach to their sort of tcm channel has been so far like it, it's a it's a perfectly good library that they have up there but it's not as beefy as the old like struck library david this
1: was this was me and kyle's entire conversation on mike before you jumped in was just me railing
3: against it like at the same time it's like you know the crowd is a national film registry inaugural class movie it's seems like something you could include i don't know
1: they also and we were discussing this too they do so many films from the warner archive on dvd that are m- like made to order you know, yeah. so they, if I decide I want to buy a Annapolis salute, they will just make that on the spot because I bought it. Why is something like the crowd not available is confounding. David, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. I, I do want to say to your credit, um, you know, we, I met you as, as all of us met you uh, working at a, at a movie theater in New York. And you, when you work at a movie theater in New York, you know, you, you see a lot of people who are part of the. You know, from the film industry or the film Twitter crowd or anything like that. And, and you have a pretty good sense of, uh, which, which people see you as, as a person and which people see you as a ticket dispenser. Um, sure. and right. to your credit, you were one of the people who, if you were coming in, you always went out of your way to say hi and, you know, and stop by and talk. And I, I, for, I think all of us who have worked that kind of, uh, you know, minimum wagey job, I can't tell you how much that means really it seems like a minor thing but i you you remember it you know
3: no no i appreciate that i mean obviously i miss it so bad uh yeah, as i'm <laughs> sure we'll do just going to the movies i should i should be uh
2: planning my trip well not planning but getting ready to go to texas next week for fantastic fest but uh clearly that's uh not happening so pretty disappointed about that but uh yeah no this was an um absolute pleasure for me uh big like i said big fan of the show um just once i don't think i laughed harder at anything than in one of the michael man episodes than you saying if i explained what this show was to michael man he would shoot me with a zip gun one of the hardest i've ever laughed and um this was a absolute uh treasure and uh thank you so much for being here this was a just that's the best yeah,
0: thank you At the beginning of the episode, David had mentioned the Godard quote, and that was actually something that I, was, I wanted to bring up in the outro, um, especially now. Um, you know, we talked about the crowd coming out around the Great Depression and how this is very much a, I guess, like a slice of life movie in a way, very very normal life, and how in such a dark time in our history, something as simple as just watching somebody live their life and grow up was entertainment. And now that we're in a very similar but still very to be determined uh circumstance here um sort of the mediums I guess that we gravitate towards in that um in that regard too, just because our entire life um just turned upside down
1: yeah i mean it's it's hard, I and mean, this was a hard one for me, and I don't mean a hard one for me in terms of like hard to figure out what to talk about or you know the episode, but just this movie was hard it was it really hit me you know i mean obviously he starts out the main action film as 21 and trying to make it but like i'm in new york i'm trying we're all trying and so much of it felt so relatable and and not a lot of movies do that not a lot of movies maybe because audiences don't really want them um but not as as many movies are willing to make you feel the undeniable hurt you know the the hurt that you can't say is someone's fault it's not johnny sim's fault that he isn't successful i i think about and not the most recent film uh which i don't love and tom didn't love either but like part of what people gravitate to charlie kaufman for is the fact that charlie kaufman's films especially synecdoche and anomalisa lisa are about these just unavoidable sad feelings that come with being alive the difficulty of of that that life is not this question you know maybe we'll go back to something that that Kyle uh, and I both love and bonded over and Tom too of course but I I got Kyle hooked on this was was madmen and that Don Draper quote of what is happiness it's a moment before you need more happiness there's that way of kind of looking at life and its potential fairness and and, and life is not fair in this film well, you know
2: it it, it is what's what's very interesting to me about this movie that i think is you know makes it really great and very timely and timeless is um yes it's very clearly attack you know calling out the system and saying it's you know a meat grinder and if you don't stay in line you're gonna fall behind you'll end up part of the crowd but i do think it is interesting that it it is kind of Putting the blame on Johnny Sims for believing his own hype Mm -hmm. and not really being able to just suck it up and say, okay, well, other people rely on me. I could have had the career my friend had if I didn't just keep digging myself deeper and deeper into my own – into this own hype man thing I got for myself. Well, my ship's going to come in. My ship's going to come in instead of just – well, no, you're – you, you you got a family your ship is not coming in just do the work and just do what you need to do and especially at you know when his child dies and he quits it's like they keep showing him it's like you keep getting jobs what, what like what i think the title call is like the sixth job he's had in four weeks or whatever where you just go and they show you oh well you know who 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 wants to sell uh um vacuums anyway it it's not important or whatever and you're like okay dude your family's going hungry just yeah the system sucks but it it it's which is funny that it feels like something a lot of people are kind of having to deal with today i mean even before 2020 decided to become the biggest fucking german shit porn in the world which was like people that you know move into New York or moving to LA or like now this place like moving to Austin it's like all these people just believe in oh if i move to this place people will just know that i'm great cuz everyone growing up told me i was great and it's like no that's not the world and i think that's it 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 it's funny cuz i i you know I, I had a little bit of that shit too man you know before i i mean bef- this job i have now is the best job i've ever had by a country mile but before I had that, you know, I had Alamo and that was the best job I ever had. And But before I had Alamo, I was stuck in a goddamn factory thinking, well, well, you know, I'm great. I just got to wait for my, my job to come in. And I wasn't actually doing the thing I wanted to do. And, you know, it's, it's, it's why I keep, keep harping on this thing. i like, holy shit, this movie feels like, yeah, it's a silent and, you know, it's not as technically polished as movies in 2020 can be, but it's like, fuck, this movie feels like, it's really honed in on shit that hasn't changed in 92 years.
1: And and I think for us in particular, I mean, look, I'm not going to get into specifics, but I know that each one of us on this show is guilty of having those same thoughts and is still guilty of them and still does them of those thoughts of like, no, no, no. But if I just do this one thing or making some decision or making some rash choice that looking back, we go, that was not maybe the right move that was yeah. kind of foolish i let my ego take control. and you know may still uh continue to do so and i think that this film is kind of like a warning for that and i'm certainly feeling it i mean this this one re- i mean you know one of the ones i hadn't seen uh, in full before but it really i mean to the point where tom as you're talking about as you are directing comments to the fictional character of johnny sims i'm feeling them all as though you're yelling at me uh so this is this was rough and in a good way and i'm really glad we did it I'm really glad that David picked it. I'm glad he's the one uh, that we had on for it. Uh, I'm glad we got
2: to talk about his family history on cinematic form.
1: Yeah, I'm glad we did it. And, you know, I, I think that, Kyle, when we started out doing this, you had asked, like, well, do I have to watch the movies, too? And I was like, well, you should. It would help and I, I think that thus far uh, it's it's been equally rewarding for you as it's been for us, I think, not to speak for you, but
0: no hundred hundred percent you know, obviously again, our objective is to shed some light on these films and to find their value and uh know, a large majority of these films are movies I haven't seen, so who would I be if uh I didn't actually put the time in to watch the movies and then uh discuss them so yeah this the crowd the crowd was easily. One of the one of the ones that we've done so far that i was i wasn't expecting to have an opinion of one way or the other um ended up really enjoying it um so yeah, and if people uh, are wondering
1: how can I watch the crowd um because it's unavailable i'll just i'm not gonna tell anybody anything inappropriate or anything like that
2: yo ho yo ho,
1: just hope that some org as an organization has archived this film just some kind of archive org uh, would 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 preserve this film and just try and find one and I'm sure it'll work out for you. You know, think that'll help. Yo ho, yo ho. <laughs> well, that's not that's sure that too. I uh, maybe. Um, that's the it, that. Hey, that's, I wasn't thinking of anything. I was just yeah. saying yo ho. Let's yo-ho. Talk about, I mean, I'm... I mean, like really accessibility. I I will. I go out of my way to not pirate films. You know, I still have a DVD Netflix subscription for that reason. It is so exhausting that there are certain movies that, like, if you want to watch the crowd, if you want to watch Il Postino, which is a pretty recent film, not a chance. No world can you find that anywhere other than the VHS, um, which is why we got to celebrate people like Kino Lorber who uh, make it possible for me to co- get a copy of the Eleanor Roosevelt story or the recently departed Twilight Time that gave me a, got. I was able to get the complete Blondie television series, uh, you know, little things like I that. Mean- that's that's why you know i i'm big big blu-ray
2: component i'm a big blu-ray fan i love these all these companies that are kind of spitting in the eye of the very idea that home video is not no longer worthy and is kind of dying because uh they're still doing some really great and crazy shit and as much as we would love if a if there was more stuff that's kind of hard to find getting out, I mean, at a certain point, I think these companies are going to start getting, it's gonna, it's getting to that point of, like, I mean, I don't know, you know, like, if it's before or after the copyright lapses, I mean, there's, I, I don't think there's no way that, like, Kino or Olive Films doesn't just say, fuck it, we're putting the crowd out because it's literally one of the most important movies ever made. And, I mean, we have no, there's no overhead at this point now. We could just do it.
1: And man, oh man, Tom, am I excited for, in a couple seasons, I don't know exactly how long, because I think there, there's there's a couple more King Vidor um, films in the registry. Uh, there's yeah. Daily Bread, our, our Daily Bread, which is the sequel, which we, you know, talked about a little bit. Yeah. Um, But then in a couple seasons, I don't know exactly, I was trying to look up how many, and I, I, I don't see it. But um, we get to do the big parade. Which is his film, The Guarantor, that gave him the blank check for this one, and I think you are going to have a real good time with that one. That is that is quite the picture. So
2: I'm very excited to do so.
1: Uh, season four, so not that far away. The big parade, World War One movie, which ties into uh, what will probably be our next episode, talking to somebody who also made a World War One movie. Hint. hint.
0: One last thing I just wanted to address about the accessibility thing and uh, you know and Tom kind of mentioned it too and I think part of the conversation is that I think businesses in general are starting to recognize that it is easier to sell you a streaming service or a license of something rather than the physical copy and oh, yeah. I'm over here thinking why am I being forced to make a decision I mean obviously look I'm not movie related but I'm very excited for the PlayStation 5 to come out if I can ever find a damn pre-order, but there's two different versions. There's a digital edition, and there's one with a hard, or a a disc drive, and it sounds like, for the most part, the majority of people who say, yeah, I'm getting this day one, are getting the one with the discs, because that physical media is still important to them. Yeah. And they are aware of, you know, what sort of things they gravitate towards that they're going to want digital, that you know the type of stuff that you want to have a physical copy of. And I would like to hopefully be in a position where we can, I don't know, not necessarily have a majority of things transition to digital necessarily, but if things start to um, get re-released in these uh, physical mediums, if they decide to do another 4K Star Wars with some actual good shit in it or something Um, that it's there's more value behind it. I don't really, I made a decision to myself in the middle of the, you know, in the middle of all of this chaos that rather than just buy a bunch of physical movies I want, I, I get steelbooks. I want something that's like, Hey, I'm keeping this. This is not something that I can just give to somebody or something that I don't want to treat with value. It's like, this is, I went out of my way to purchase something in a, in a nice physical container that i can keep with me and hold on to and if there's something i want to get added to my itunes collection for like 4.99 then great i can i can do that no problem i just i guess i'm tired of the conversation that it has to be one or the other for any medium
1: i mean i think that i think it's also a matter of people do not uh, people don't really value media as much and, and think that it has any worth I think that the advent of streaming services has made it such that people don't think they have to pay for things. Um, I mean, you pay for a streaming service, but I think about the fact that right. the people, people seem to think that they'd be more on board to pay for things than they are. Like, I think if you turned around to somebody and said, you know, like, how many people are turning around and going, oh, just put Tenant on VOD already. Just put it on VOD. Just put it on VOD. And I'm like, there's no price point where you'll actually think it's reasonable for Tenant. I promise you. There's no price point. Because even those people are like, I'd pay, uh, you know, oh, you told me I had to. If they're now telling themselves, oh, if you told me I had to subscribe to HBO Max and then pay $30 and I'd get access to Tenant. They're like, oh, I'd totally do that. No, you wouldn't. Like, they will no. always need to be cheaper. It will always need to be less. It will always need to be. I mean, I I remember going back to college, having an argument with a guy who tried to tell me that he was right. It was totally okay for him to pirate music because he couldn't afford it otherwise. And it's not fair for him to have to pay for something that he wants to be able to listen to. And it's like, well, that's not how that fucking works. Like, you know, and I see that with this kind of even some people who are like, oh, it's unfair that this movie. That, that that only certain people can can see this movie at a digital film festival. Just release it online for everyone. It's like, hey man, just have a modicum of patience and accept that maybe you have to exchange money for things.
0: Right, and I'm and it's and it's funny. I mean, I've grown up kind of in the, obviously in the evolving world of like LimeWire and you know the Pirate Bay and and whatnot. And so my relationship with music and stuff is complicated too. And yet, um, or accessing music is complicated. And yet come 2011, 2012, Spotify gets, you know, takes off and basically says, Hey, do you like music? Here is all of the music. Just give us one, you know, just give us a monthly fee. And then something in my brain went off that was like, well, why do I need to go out of my way to access this music either early or, you know, legally, if there is a, a a system that will allow me to do so. Now, obviously there's, you know, hold conversations we could have about how they get paid and all of that and stuff. And it's if you give a if you provide a platform for people to access a bunch of things, you'll watch it. I mean, Mike, you always talk about all of the things on on Disney Plus that you would not go out of your way to hunt for. But if they throw it on there, you're going to watch it.
1: Of course. But I also think I mean, I think about uh, not to get too off topic and we'll wrap this up. And I don't know how much this Kyle is going to keep any of it. I think about Movie Pass and my biggest <laughs> why I despise. Why do you think about Movie Pass? Why, Kyle? No, really, I'll tell you why. Because the the fact that the subscription based movie ticket thing was one of the worst things to happen to that. <laughs> <industry>. <laughs> um, no, yeah, because that was... I think it, yeah, because I think it it devalued the process of of movie going. You know, I think that there used to be an idea of you know box office reports now were based on like I'll you know i i will give money to see this thing i will give you money in exchange for this thing and you would think the people who had the pie in the sky dream of this and we all dealt with this you know with ticket sales had the pie in the sky dream of like well it'll mean people will go see more movies and experience the magic of cinema and 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 they'll appreciate it and instead what you got were people who would show up and and they'd hand me the movie pass card and i'd swipe it and go hey you're not allowed to see this movie like you've already you've already used your movie pass credit for the day and they're like yeah whatever you don't lose money on it who cares Come on, just let me go and buy. I'm like, you're not even. <laughs> that's the thing. It was, it was this idea of like you were paying five, how much? How much was it a month for that that stupid oh, fucking God. thing? Didn't
0: was wasn't it upwards of twenty bucks a month? At Some one point?
1: bullshit. Whatever it was, like you were essentially like after seeing three movies, you basically got a free movie ticket, and it still wasn't enough. It no. will never be enough, and that's the thing that gets to me is it's like, yeah, I bought the premium access to Mulan because I wanted to see it, and for me. I don't have a problem with buying a digital copy of a film. And yes, I have to maintain a subscription to a service that gives me access to, I would say, a quarter of the archive of an entire film studio. And same thing, like, if they decided that Tenant was going on HBO Max and I had to pay an extra $30 premium access, I don't have a problem with that. I don't know if I'll do it because I don't really care. Um, I'm not that into Tenant um i'm happy it exists and i'll probably watch it at some point but i'm not in a rush uh as many people felt about mulan and i'm not going to fault anybody for that but i think that the idea of anybody who has this idea of like oh well i would totally be willing how many people would be like it's too expensive to go to the movies i would totally pay that same amount to watch it in my home and now the options there to like well you can pay this amount and watch it in your home and people go that's too much
0: the one thing i do appreciate is um You know, my grandfather a couple years ago uh, suffered a stroke, which he's still been recovering from. And so a lot of the things that he used to do, uh, he no longer can. And so the time that he has has now been replaced with Netflix and Hulu and HBO Max. And um, he consumes everything. And it's set up for him in a way that. Um, He can he can he can access it. And I just visited him yesterday. And out of the blue, he's like, hey, can I get for whom the bell tolls? And I genuinely did not know. But we were able to find the Apple TV app and determine that, yeah, you can get it on Peacock. Yeah. And I was able to set that up and everything. So you know, uh, and I have also just been promoting the show to him too. Like, Hey, we're talking about a lot of the movies (laughs) that you've seen, you know, like you will like this. So as long as you don't care about a couple of fucks from Tom, every once in a while, you're, you're going to be fine.
1: So to wrap up this, but it is uh, streaming is great. It allows us access to so many things. I'm very happy. I'm not against streaming platforms at all. I should not be the only way to access this stuff because then that essentially means if tomorrow, uh, if tomorrow disney plus implodes i have no way of ever accessing half of this stuff again and the same way the registry exists for this purpose the registry exists to ensure that these things exist that even if ted turner wanted to colorize citizen kane the original still exists and there's a lot of films and things i mean what we're talking about here we're not just talking about you know movies that oh i think this is really good and should be preserved it's also in some time in some cases us going well here's a thing that needs to be around it needs to exist in some form we cannot just leave it up to universal to have it sitting in its vault that could one day catch fire you know to to tie it into a thing that uh and and i'll bring it up on another episode when i suggest it should be in the registry but tie it into a subject that tom maybe hates uh Muppet Vision 3D is a 3D movie that plays in Disney's Hollywood Studios. That's the only place it's playing right now, I believe. Uh, And it is the last thing Jim Henson worked on before he died. If they decide to take this ride out of a theme park, the last film Jim Henson ever made will be entirely inaccessible. Other than Cam Rips on YouTube. There's gotta be something else. There's gotta be a way to preserve this. You know, like that kind of a thing. And maybe that means nothing to the general public, but if you're a Henson scholar, you want to have access to this stuff. The same way, if I was doing a study on Henson, I can go to the Museum of the Moving Image in Queens and be like, can I please, what do I have to do to watch Time his Oscar-nominated short? And they have a copy of that. They're able to make that accessible to people. And I think that's really what this is all about.
0: So as we wrap things up, um, fellas, what film would you select um, that's not already in the registry. For those that don't know, film has to be at least 10 years old, and it needs to be an American film in order to qualify for the National Film Registry. So what are your picks, gents?
1: So for me, I was thinking about, um, you know, there's so much with this film. Despite being, you know, uh, a, a single story about being in New York, feeling part of the crowd, there's so much to draw from in this. And I'm sure that, you know, I could have gone a million different ways uh, and made it work. And I, I, when I first... Finished watching it, I really struggled for a minute, like what am I gonna pick? What what is gonna be the, the film that I go with for this? How am I gonna tie it in? And then uh, over the the by the end of the evening, I realized there was one thing that really stuck with me and really hit me, which is how profoundly wounded I had become by the death of the daughter. That scene and the look on his face. And the way he carries her body through that throng around him, and the way that it haunts him. And I tried to think of when was the last time, because people die in movies all the time, right? And most often, I, I feel like it's a narrative crutch, and it's done to cheaply get an emotional rise out of the audience. There are a few things I dislike more in a movie than when I see it's doing something... That's an obvious button push. And Tom's heard me rant about pushing the button a million times, but I hate those obvious button pushes. Whether it's child nostalgia or or character death or anything like that, where it's just like, we know this will get a reaction out of people, so let's do it. And this wasn't a button push. This was undeniably, truly grappling with the tragedy of it and making you sit in that tragedy of it and kind of the banality of tragedy in modern life the way that the world continues to go on around you. And you're the, you, you feel like you're the only person that can possibly, or the only person that is actually feeling the right way because everybody else is just moving on. And I was trying to think of the last time a movie made me feel that. The last time a movie had a moment that was that emotional, especially the death of a child, that emotional, and it felt sincere to me and it felt honest to me and it really hit me. And once I started thinking about that, the film I thought of really kind of fits the crowd in a way in terms of how it's also about being lost in the shuffle of life. Another film that that really is just about this thing that movies don't do that often of just, life isn't fair, life isn't necessarily even that good, but we're kind of getting by and we're just doing what we can. Um, And it's somehow not in the registry, which stuns me because it was a huge hit and an Oscar winner, Um, which is uh James L. Brooks' Terms of Endearment. It's a movie that if somebody describes it to you you're most likely going to kind of cynically go yeah okay yeah sure 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 but then you watch it and it hits you like a ton of bricks it is so honest so sincere and the the give my daughter the shot scene hits me in the same exact way that sim's carrying his daughter's body hit me i'm i'm truly just surprised i i keep doubting myself and going back to check if it's actually in because it should be and it's just such a quintessential american film and one of the best films of the 1980s uh and it hits the same exact spot the crowd does except obviously about a mother and a daughter uh, just a profound film and I, I that would be my nomination for the registry
2: that's a good call i love terms of endearment and uh just uh on a personal level jack nicholson's operating on a on a nuclear level of Jack in that movie. So obviously I, I love it a bunch just for that alone. But yeah, everything else in that movie is pretty fucking great. So for me, when it came to this, um, like Mike said, there was a lot of angles you could have taken for this. Um, I started thinking about the, the child aspect of it. I was looking at that, thinking about that. And I had a few options there. But I think for me, the thing that really stuck with me, I think, is one of the big things that makes the movie such an icon and made it such a big important movie is it's uh tackling of the system of capitalism of the grinding people into gear into a, you know, they've become part of the machine. And if you step one bit out of, out of pace with everyone else, you're going to fall behind. And like the movie says, you will just become a part of the crowd and you will become forgotten. And uh, you'll barely be able to survive, barely be able to keep your head above water. So I started thinking about that. And there are a bunch of good movies that have come out since then that are clearly influenced by it in an obvious way or in a subtle, subconscious way. But there's one movie that I think that has been really, really shockingly timely in the last, let's say, 12 years since, let's say, the banking crisis. A movie that has aged like fine wine and keeps aging like fine wine. A movie that was so good at taking the system down and really just attacking capitalism that the right wing tried to co-opt the movie for itself and actually saying, oh, well, no, actually, it's actually saying uh, our ideas are good. It's this and blah, blah, blah. Where um the director had to come out and say, no, fuck you, this movie says you guys are evil, and it's not pro-you. The movie is They Live. And it's a movie that at the time, a lot of people dismissed as, oh, it's that movie with the wrestler. Yeah, that's kind of stupid, but I honestly don't think, even in a decade that gave us really great political satires hidden in a B-movie package like Robocop or stuff like I mean there was a lot in the 80s that was kind of doing this I don't think anything is better than they live at really just wrangling up the feeling of hopelessness the feeling that the entire system is designed to keep you down because it is designed to keep you down it's putting it into a sci-fi package by saying it's aliens that are That know how to keep the lower class down, keep them in the lower class and make sure they never get out of it unless they sell their souls and sell out their other, sell out the others in their group for just a little piece of the pie. I mean, I don't think there's any sci-fi just idea, even more so than anything introduced in the Matrix. I don't think there's anything more just simple and potent than the idea of the sunglasses that just. Show you the world as it is. I mean, it's, and, and as much as it's iconic in how over the top it is, the fight scene is thematically rich and just, it, it feels like having to get into a knockdown drag out fight with someone to try to get them to see the truth when they don't want to. I mean, we're literally, we're living in that for the last four years of watching the people we thought we knew and loved. In some cases, for some people, all of a sudden being brainwashed by Fox News, by Breitbart, by the right wing, and trying to get to see these people, trying to get these people to see the truth is like this movie, put bringing them in a back alley and trying to beat the shit out of them until they put the goddamn glasses on and see what's around them, which is, you're a pawn. You're just something for these rich people to eat and profit off of. You're nothing. And... For a movie, for, for something that I think the movie that... For the crowd, really, the capitalism and the system, the political t- satire of it, I think um there is a pretty clear line in John Carpenter saying, well, okay, you can't just do the crowd, so let me take the sci-fi route and really show you the system is designed to keep you down and grind you up. So my pick is... uh Shouldn't be a shock for the two fellas that I'm recording with that it's a John Carpenter movie that they live.
0: Thank you for listening, and thanks to David Sims for joining us. You can check out his podcast, Blank Check, with Griffin and David every Sunday wherever you get your podcasts, and follow him on social media at DavidLSims. You can also follow our co-hosts on social media as well. You can find Mike at NKOAS and Tom at Raging Bull 1990 And you can find me at Theatricality with a K. While you're there, be sure to follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at YMO Podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps a little show like ours. If you know some friends who might like the show, tell them about it. And if you have someone you think would make a great guest for an upcoming film, tell us about it at yourmissingoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time.